Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. My guest today is Dave Stebbins, a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Hey, Dave, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Justin. Happy to have you on to discuss this really interesting and relevant uh, report, National Security Employment, Improving the Candidate Experience Journey Through the Personnel Vetting Process, which, as I think the report mentions, is, is really this new way of looking at this whole personnel vetting issue. There have, of course, been a lot of reforms over the last couple of years, a lot of focus on the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative. Tell us a little bit about what your report really found. What were some of the the major findings in terms of the candidate experience and people who are going into applying to a national security job? And, and, and what were some of the major issues to track there? I'll start with sort of using your own words. This is sort of a new look, right? This is kind of flipping the traditional you know, viewpoint on this, right, where it's sort of top down, you know, from the government angle. And what we really wanted to do from this report was sort of reveal it from the candidate's point of view, right? It hasn't been done before from that lens. Uh, and that's really how we set out uh, with this report, right? And, you, and so you see, as you go through, uh, we, we have a framework that really is, it's from the candidate viewpoint, but it, it's also, hey, government, you know, take a look at these things, these categories as well. Um, so we, we try to incorporate both of those uh, viewpoints. And really the main thing here that was that was found, there's a number of really interesting recommendations and observations that we'll get into, but really the big picture here is that there is no across the board approach for really creating a positive candidate experience through kind of these federal hiring and screening processes. Why why isn't there any sort of institutionalized approach here at this point? And what is RAND proposing to maybe help address that problem? So as we started looking at this and conducting um, sort of our traditional literature review, right, where we look at government policy, government documents, and then the academic literature, right? So the government does have um, a a pretty good handle on customer experience, right? This is separate from candidate, but I, I will circle back to that in a moment. So I think it's the the OMB, right? The Office of Management and Budgets, uh, budgets. Uh, I think it's A-11, their circular, and it's really directs um, agencies to provide better customer experience. Uh, and these are these are agencies that are designated as high impact service providers, HISPs. And so there is a lot of good, um, uh, you know, thinking out there about how to provide better government services to the public, right? And so this is, you know, do you need help with your tax forms, right? It, it's IRS. Do you need help with federal loans through, through your, you know, your student loans? You know, here's how you can sort of work those things through through Department of Ed. But as we looked through, uh, we noticed that a lot of the existing, you know, sort of government gu- guidance and policy is really focused outwardly, right? So again, pu- very public facing, not a whole lot looking uh, internally, right, at, at those folks who are trying to enter government service, uh, and especially as our report focuses on that, that vetting process, right? Whether that's the, um, you know, a public trust position, a sensitive position, or or again, the, the security clearance uh, population. So as we started our research, we quickly came to realize, uh, you know, we actually thought we had something great, right, with the HISP things. But again, as we dug down into it, we 
very quickly realized, no, actually this is or HISP uh, designated departments and agencies. And this work was performed for the Performance Accountability Program Management Office, right? And so they have responsibilities for a lot of these, these reform uh, efforts that you mentioned before. I think you mentioned the Trusted Workforce 2.0 uh, initiative. There is some existing guidance, so we could use that as sort of a baseline to work from. But again, that's sort of guidance, right? It's it's not a formalized thing um, to, to sort of put put a put a point on it, right? And so, you know, again, as we went through, we can see lots of um, uh, you know folks, you know, wanting to improve the candidate experience across the board, but there's really there's no training on how to do that, right? It's not really formalized in any meaningful way across departments and agencies. And so really, this report, again, was to try to examine sort of what's out there, but at the same time, it was very much an exploratory research effort, you know, trying to understand, well, how is the private sector doing it? Can we sort of, you know, uh, borrow any of those practices and apply it to the government side? And so I think, again, that's where a lot of those observations and suggestions um, fall out at the end. And I'm happy to walk through those uh, as well, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the concrete things that the government could do to improve this process. So, I mean, I think all of our listeners are probably aware the security clearance process at for lack of a better term, it stinks. Uh, you know, everyone knows it takes a long time. It's almost accepted at this point, and they've tried to push down on the time it takes. But beyond that, you know, as you mentioned, there, there isn't a lot of metrics and data on what exactly that experience is between when you first get interested in a job and, and maybe when you get hired or not. So let's drill down into some of the things that maybe the government could do to really improve this candidate experience. Sure. Yeah. And so I, you know, I will say, you know, I think this has been examined a lot in the past, right? And, and mainly it's been looking at the timeline, right? I'm sure you've seen all the GAO reports and, you know, CRS reports, and it's all, it's really all focused on timelines, right? Time to time to process and so forth. And again, I think that's maybe one of several things that, that the government could be looking at. You know, I, I think what we did is we sort of backed up from this and we really wanted to look at this in three phases, right? At most folks, and again, those GAO reports, they're focusing specifically on that vetting process, right? And But, oh, by the way, this person had to have applied at some point, right? They had to be looking for a job. And also, oh, by the way, it's not over uh, after that vetting process. As you know, you know, part of the Trusted Workforce uh, 2.0, um, you know, lines of effort is to enroll, uh, you know, um, folks into uh, continuous vetting, right, CV. Um, and so that candidate experience can't just stop right at the end of your your vetting process, right? Um, and so what we tried to do is we took a little bit of a business model approach to it, right? And I think you you see that throughout the report, but we really wanted to look at that pre-initial vetting stage, right, where folks are applying, they're looking for jobs, uh, right? And, you know, trying to figure out, well, geez, do I even want to do this, right? And I think, again, that's something that it hasn't been really examined in the past. So we wanted to start with that. And then, of course, we have the vetting stage, and I can get back into that in a moment. And then, of course, that post-initial vetting stage where folks are now onboarded, uh, hopefully, right? Uh, and then they are still undergoing this, this new continuous vetting model. There are a couple of other initiatives going on, right? So we've got the TW uh, 2.0, and one of those lines of effort is enhancing individual engagement. And so that's part of the impetus of this report. Uh, we talked a little bit about those those engagement guidelines. There's also a couple of other ongoing efforts to make the process a little bit easier, right? And so we have, there, there's a new proposed PVQ, the personal vetting questionnaire, and this is actually up for comment, or it was up for comment recently, but this is, you know, looking to simplify the language a little bit, not have a, a, a thousand questions, right, on your form and, you know, the last thing we want to do is have a long form and confuse people and then you know before they can even enter the vetting stage right that they've sort of self-selected out and 
uh, you know, oh, I can get a job somewhere else. Uh, that that's a, a whole lot easier. It sounds like there are some efforts ongoing. You know, uh, you know let's talk about the the framework that you're proposing here for security vetting. And what might that look like, and how might that help the government address kind of this lack of an institutionalized process here for candidate experience? I'll start with you know our framework is a way to think about it. Uh, I will say that it is not the way to think about it, right? Because as we know. There are lots of different departments and, and agencies throughout the, the U.S. government, right? And so we didn't want to have a one-size-fits-all approach. And, and certainly, you know, as we learned, again, through our literature review and interviews, especially with the private sector, right, every, everything is different, right? And so I, I know the government loves to standardize things, right, and streamline things, but really this is sort of a flexible framework that departments and agencies could take and then, again, sort of develop its, its own formalized guidance on, on how to do this. Our framework really starts with step one, right, where somebody is looking for a job. Uh, and again, in the, in the business world, right, this is sort of the awareness, attraction and consideration stage, right? And this is all about, you know, branding and so forth. The, the questions we develop, they're very open-ended um, and they're a bit reflexive. It's almost at a three-year-old level, right? Well, how do people even know we exist, right? How can we be more proactive in doing that, right? So, you know, folks who come fresh to DC, it's sort of the alphabet soup. Not a whole lot of information on there. You know, some departments or agencies are better than others on sort of highlighting what they do and what the mission is and what they're looking for, right? But obviously, you know, no process is perfect, right? There's always room for improvement. Uh, otherwise, there wouldn't be a process. It would just happen. You know, I would also say yeah, I'm looking at some these other things, right? What What's motivating candidates right now? So obviously some generational changes we're seeing between sort of the traditional workforce population and then the emerging generations, right? The traditional workforce is perhaps I'm generalizing here a bit. And so I don't want to over categorize, but, you know, traditional is, you know, where can I go work for 20 to 30, 40 years, right? Retire, get my special watch and I'm good, right? But of course, as you know, the emerging uh uh, you know, Gen Z and, and uh, millennial and be interested in, well, how can I identify this work? You know, what's their CSR, right? Their corporate social responsibility, right? You know, it's, it's very different things than sort of that traditional workforce. So again, you know, I think there's a series of, you know, 14 or 15 questions, even in just that first step to help departments and agencies think about, well, okay, you know, how can we sort of relook at these things? Moving on from there, right, is applying to a position. And I'll read some of the questions here uh, just very briefly. You know, how long does our initial application process take. In the private sector, uh, it's about five to 15 minutes av on the average from, you know, with the folks we talked to. And again, from our literature review, that's how long their application takes. They, they found that if it takes longer than five to 15 minutes, the person loses interest very quickly, right? And they're on to the next gig. Is that a bridge too far for the SF-85, 85P, 85-6? I don't know, but there's certainly perhaps some efficiencies that could be gained there. And again, I think this new proposed PVQ, right, the personal vetting questionnaire, is trying to tackle some of that, right? Condensing a lot of these things. Are we asking the same question 10 different ways, 10 different times kinds of thing. And again, that's Dave Stebbins, a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions. 
combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC. I'm your host, Justin Doubleday, and today we're talking about how the government could improve the candidate experience for those applying for a cleared position. We're speaking with one of the authors of a new RAND report on that topic, Dave Stebbins. Some of the other things here, have we provided clear timelines and expectations? Um, this is another big finding from the private sector, right? They they have sort of a timeline right on their webpage, right? Here's when you apply, here's when you should expect to hear sort of these um, signposts, if you will, right? And, you know, one of the things we learned through our interviews is uh, with the private sector is you can kind of think about it um, uh, like a Disney ride, right? So you see the ride, you know, you, you get to Disney, Disneyland or Disney World, whatever it is uh, in Florida, and you see the line is super long, right? But you really want to get on this ride. Why do people stay in line? Well, because there's signs there that say, you know, expect 45 minutes from this spot, 30, 30 minutes from this spot, right? So there's sort of still motive, you know, uh, yeah, we're baking in the sun. We we hate that we're, you know, surrounded by a thousand people. However, there's these little signs there that say, oh, okay, I'm going to get on this roller coaster or uh, teacup, whatever, whatever uh, your thrill ride is that day. So again, I, I think something really, really uh, important and valid for the government to think about while they're sort of forecasting this for, for that person who's applying and sort of a, you know, here's what to expect sort of thing. Step three, right, the job interview and testing. And, and just for your listeners, right, this we're still very much in the pre-initial vetting stage. So this is before they've even applied, you know, or, or, or uh, completed the paperwork for, for those security vetting forms. We, we found that uh, you know, a lot of investigative agencies aren't always well integrated with sort of those front end processes, those recruiters, those those HR organizations, right? It, you sort of hired for a job and then your your investigation package is sort of sent from that, you know, that recruiter or that hiring manager, or whatever, to the to the authorized investigative agency, right? Or the ISP or the investigative service provider. And so that's why, again, we wanted to highlight a lot of these things so that vetting personnel within this SSC context could start building those those bridges or those relationships, right? Have a more networked um, function with a lot of those front end process, which, again, is really aimed towards this seamless candidate experience process, right? We don't want to just have this these huge sort of brick walls in between each of the, these three stages. And so what we've tried to do throughout this framework is to really try to make this a seamless framework so that, you know, the handoff is gentle, right? It's not just a hard stop sort of door in your face, then you have a, a totally new person who you've ne never met before right on the phone with. Uh, so that's what that's why I'm going through some of these three initial vetting things. So job interview and testing, I think we, we've talked a lot about this in the report, you know, even providing people with the power or agency to schedule their own interviews, right? Rather than you must show up at 8 a.m. on this date, you know, at some building you've never heard of in the middle of D.C. or outside of D.C., right? Preparatory materials, right? A lot of folks um, sort of show up to these things, not again, not knowing what to expect. This comes back to that signpost point, right? They're already scared, right? Because they're, they're you know, this is totally new. They, maybe they've never sort of been in this this betting world before. But even, you know, sort of, you know, what kind of questions you might expect to be uh, asked. And so even again, sort sort of the the categories of questions that you might encounter. And again, just again, the signposts that that show you very clearly. 
you know, after you apply, you might expect to hear from these folks. Here's here's sort of what's going to happen, right? Uh, almost a betting brochure, if you will, right? Sort of lining those things up for you, so so you know what to expect. We talked with somebody in the the private sector. It's a famous audio company, right? And so what they do is before candidates even come in to be interviewed for for a job at their organization. They ask candidates what their favorite song is, and the candidate, you know, usually puts their hands up. Why do they need this, right? But they write their favorite song. When they come in to that interview, their favorite song is actually playing on some speakers, and uh, it's it's like their favorite thing in the world. That you know they can't believe it, and so that's just one of those. You know, is the government going to be playing your favorite song? Maybe not, but uh, again, this is just sort of the thinking that's sort of out there. And again, to make people feel as comfortable as possible. Vetting is an uncomfortable process, right? That's no secret, um, and there there are certainly various reasons for that but the, the more we can sort of make them feel welcome comfortable and really that we want you to work for us right not that we're trying to vet out but that we're trying to vet in right uh, especially right now as it, well you you know the job market situation post covid and everything else um so i think it's sort of incumbent upon the government to sort of at least consider some of these things to to entice more folks in. If I could just ask a follow up there, I mean, it does seem as if there's this mindset you mentioned that vetting out versus vetting in, weeding people out versus you know pulling people in. That that's a cultural thing, I think, that is going to be tough. Uh, but it'll take some and it'll take some work to overcome that. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's this this term that's out there in the literature. It's called two way matching. And I, I don't know if this is Harvard Business Review um, or or another source. Uh, forgive me. But yeah, it's really that, you know, traditionally it's uh, we want information poll. Right. So send us these documents. Send us your fingerprints. Send us your path like send, 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 send. Right. However, two-way matching, uh, especially with the, the hiring context, is sending information as well. And so I, I, I think, again, sort of speaks to the point you just made. T totally different cultural mindset. Uh, and I think this is something, you know, this is, this, the report is written at all levels, but I think this is one of our recommendations as well, is that this will require some element of, you know, some foundational change management techniques, right? Some Some demand signals from the top um, that, hey, no, this is a priority. Obviously, you know, Again, you think thinking back to your TW 2.0 comment, lots of initiatives there, right? Candidate experience is one of them, but you know, making that a high priority is is probably key to institutionalizing this, right? To structuring it uh, across the vetting uh, world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you know you've hit on how there's elements of that in trusted workforce 2.0, but a lot of it is really focused on top down within agencies streamlining processes where they can making it faster, but not necessarily looking so much at that candidate experience. And and I really want to hit on the the vetting portion of this now because that really seems like the the really tough nut to crack. And I, I want to look at some of the the interviews that you did with, with folks who actually have gone through this process. And I think folks can a lot of folks can probably have had the same experience. one of these folks, they received a job offer in the mail but did not hear anything else for 18 months. Um, and they were already in the government. They were applying to another DOD organization, I believe. And then another had a similar experience. Essentially, you apply, like you said, you get you get, you get the offer, but then you have to go through the background investigation. Things seem to go into a black hole. What did your report look at there? Yeah, I think this was thinking back. This is the tale of two candidate experiences or something. I'm sort of looking at one one person who was already 
part of the you know the government service, right? And so we, we could probably have a whole nother interview on just reciprocity, right? Obviously, that's a, that's that's a, that's a key issue right now under trusted workforce um, uh, 2.0. Uh, um, and so, right, like as, as you said, this person applied. He already was uh, uh, cleared across various organizations. I, I guess I can say that. Um, but right, but that it took 18 months from the time of applying to even hear about anything, um, um, you know, from this organization about whether uh, this person was hired or not. And I, I'm treading carefully here, so bear with me. Um, but right, so good news in the end, yes, this person was vetted and, and hired into this organization, but the experience was so detrimental to his overall candidate experience, he only ended up staying at the organization for a year, right? And so that's another thing for the government to think about is, again, we're thinking about, again, if you think about the GAO report, it's all about timelines and process, we're not even looking at retention on the other end, right? And so that's another huge part of the candidate experience is, if they have a terrible experience up front, terrible experience in the middle, right, during vetting, even if we hire them after 18 or 24 months, uh, I think that was the, the longest we had heard, that person might not stay, right, because they've, they've just become so disenfranchised with the process and having to, you know, answer the same questions over and over and over, especially if they're already in government service, right? How do they not know where I lived when I was 10? I've listed this, you know, 100 times already, you know, those sorts of things. Um, so, I again, that's why we put that person's experience in there, because, you know, good news in the end, yes, he was vetted and, and cleared and, and onboarded. Um, but again, that process was so stressful, right, that he he ended up only staying at this organization about a year before moving on to the private sector. And then, yeah, the other person, same same sorts of things. We didn't use those in the report to show that the process is completely broken, right? We didn't want to put that out there. Just that if you have a bad candidate experience, if somebody you know has a bad candidate experience, uh, journey is the term we used, right? Or maybe adventure is a better term. It may not turn out well in the end, even if, again, if they're vetted or cleared, they may not want to stay. That's the other thing, right? Word of mouth is very strong, as you know, in the in the Beltway area, the DMV, right? So as soon as uh, somebody has a bad experience, they're not going to keep that to themselves, right? It's going to go on a blog, it's going to go on social media, they're going to tell all their friends, you know, even if those people want to apply, oh my gosh, it took me 18 months, you don't want to do this, go look somewhere else, right? And, you know, I've heard this from folks, right? Uh, not, not even just as part of this report, but that sort of word of mouth, right? A negative experience. We can see this even on Amazon, right? All those negative things will go up, but not a whole lot of positive reviews all the time, right? And so that, that that's something else that, that can be super tricky. Absolutely. I mean, I just think personal examples are always very, very powerful to, to help really illustrate what we're talking about here. And I think the important thing to note is that your report is not necessarily looking at whether that background investigation process, and it took so long, whether that was faulty, in and of itself, it was just that the experience of it could have been improved in some way. Maybe it's another marker for reciprocity and just, yeah, speeding that up. Maybe it's, you know, to do something else to help improve that experience as that individual is going through the process. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, that was one of the other things we highlighted. There's not a whole lot of places in the current system, excuse me, the current process to provide feedback, right? Maybe they can only provide feedback once they've been onboarded. They're in continuous vetting now, right, under trusted workforce, but not a whole lot of, of opportunities to provide that feedback. So that's one of the other things we note, and I think that's one of our suggestions, is start thinking about some metrics to to bake in, right, or build onto the existing process, whether it's quick, you know, sort of Likert one through five, you know, everybody knows the, the five-star system now, so that's pretty easy to, to understand across the system, but that can probably also identify by other pain points, right, in the process. Maybe a bunch of people gave this one part of the vetting process one star, 
Uh, and maybe that sort of illuminates something where, you know, the government thought, oh, actually, we thought we were pretty good here. But wait a minute, why are there uh, a million one stars in this one step? Maybe that one person can't find their POC ever, right, when they, when they have a question about filling out forms or, or the adjudication process, right? So I think to your point, you know, having those metrics is key, again, as part of this overall uh, effort to, to formalize uh, this sort of thing. The recommendations or suggestions in here for uh, more formalized candidate experience training uh, across uh, government, um, you know, working with front end recruiters, HR and onboarding staff to have some experience, candidate experience metrics. Part of the, the tension here is that a background investigation is, as you mentioned, is it needs to be airtight, as we've seen with recent recent incidents. You know, who can really step in to either work with the investigating agencies, defense counterintelligence security agency being the big one across government, or, or how could DCSA or in similar organizations maybe make it easier without sacrificing their security mandate, which is obviously so important. Can you talk a little bit about the tension there and, and where there are some opportunities for these different organizations during this vetting process to change some things? Sure. And I'm going to I'm going to work in one of my earlier points back to I talked a little bit about OMB in the the A-11 circular. And again, that's a public sort of facing mindset, right? This is the high impact service provider or or HISP agency, right? So these are the folks providing passports, taxes, right? So IRS, uh, State Department, right? There, there's if you go to performance.gov, um, you know, there's a whole list of high impact service providers and uh, you know a, a list of efforts and metrics and milestones on how to deliver public goods in, 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 a, in a meaningful way. But to relate this to your training point, there are customer experience strategists that I'm not, notice I didn't say candidate. There are customer experience strategists, I think, assigned to every HISP. And what, once you have that HISP designation, there are sort of a variety of, of benefits from that. And one of those, and again, this is the customer experience side, is some training, right? Advice, training, they help you develop metrics, they help you revamp websites. I will also preface that with, I am not an expert uh, at HISP in any, in any way, but there are uh, a whole cadre of staff um, uh, called customer experience strategists. And I think it's a fairly recent job title. And I think this was out of one of the recent executive orders, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's you know improving public engagement, improve, improving public service. And I think those customer experience strategists or CX strategists is sometimes what they're called uh, in, in the government circles. I think there's a role there for them. They've helped you know the, the VA, right? The Veterans Administration sort of revamp their websites. They've helped folks train. And again, that's external services, but I think there is an opportunity there for, for some training for, for investigators and even adjudicators. I don't want to say there's there's no efforts to do this, right? Obviously, that is part of at least informally investigative and adjudicative training, right? We what we don't want to close anybody out completely, right? So there there are some efforts out there, but I think you know the, those CX strategists, I, I think there's a, a big role for them there um, that that could at least provide, if not the whole thing, right? At least a baseline foundation, some lessons learned on on sort of building towards a more formalized uh, curriculum for this. And this also relates back to my demand signal and change management sort of from the top, right? That that sort of uh, training syllabus or curriculum, that's not going to appear, right? Unless there is a demand signal from from sort of, you know, top, right? For, from in the SSC world that, hey, no, we do need to make this a formalized part of training. Everybody needs to, you know, sort of meet these metrics and understand 
vetting in versus vetting out, right? We want to be vetting these folks in. And I, I think that's where that, that mindset change is needed. I, I wanted to just, you know, ask uh, before we f- finish up here, Dave, you've run through the report. Is there anything else that you think is particularly important to mention? And then what should we watch going forward? I obviously don't speak for the government, but but some of the important processes that the government is adopting going forward to maybe help improve some of these things we've talked about today. We recently released another report um, about harnessing mobile technology for vetting. I don't, I don't know if you've seen that report, but just thinking about the new world in which we live, right? So in this, whether uh, we're in the COVID or post-COVID, hopefully post-COVID environment, right? There were lots of changes that took place and things the government never thought they would do or have to do, they did, right? One of those things was at least some making some parts of the vetting process virtual, right? So doing virtual interviews, again, texting with folks, maybe a little bit outside of that traditional comfort zone. And so there were lots of organizations. And I, I think the I think OPM sort of released a lot of guidance on this, as did uh, DHS, the Homeland Security. There were all kinds of waivers. Yes, you can do your fingerprints virtually. Yes, we, we can talk to you on MS Teams like, like we're doing today. And so I, I think the culture change, it, it's there, right? It, there's a kernel of culture change because it, it, it we've been doing it for about two and a half years now, right? Since it was at February or March 2020 when everything sort of shut down, can't do in-person things. And then, you know, that's, that's when innovation happens, right? When all of a sudden we are sort of forced to, unfortunately, right, for us when we are sort of forced to make this change. But, you know, one of those things we were sort of concerned about is now that we're sort of in this post-COVID world, a lot of those flexibilities that were afforded to candidates, right, um, could start to sunset or disappear, right? A lot of people, and we still hear this through interviews, and I won't say who or where, we want to put eyes on this person. I don't trust somebody in a virtual environment. I can't see what their hands or feet are doing. Okay. If we start reverting to those traditional processes, right, the 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 traditional culture sort of wins, right, and and all of these new flexibilities and, and um, opportunities sort of go out the window. And so that was one of the things we we looked at in that previous report, and um, not so much a concern, but an observation. Hey, let's see if any of these flexibilities can stay in place again to sort of make this process easier looking forward, because um, it's not sort of if, but when one of these sorts of events happens again, and all of a sudden. We don't want to keep reinventing the wheel, right? If it works during COVID, it, it could probably work during something else, right? So why not try to keep some of the, at least some of these processes in place? And especially for folks who are remote, right? They're living in parts of the U.S. or or they're stationed overseas, right? Having them come back to the U.S. to do fingerprints or something to, to maintain their clearance, not ideal, doesn't save a whole lot of money and, of course, waste time, right? So there are still some flexibilities in place. And, you know, I, I think that can be super helpful in the long run. So just something to be thinking about. Absolutely. Great points. I mean, I, I think the, those types of flexibilities are probably embraced by the younger generations that in, in a lot of ways the government is trying to recruit, but there's this tension between kind of these old and new approaches. And um, yeah, we'll have to watch watch that going forward. Well, well, Dave, I, I really appreciate the time. Uh, again, Dave Stebbins, he's a political scientist at RAND. Dave, thanks again. Thank you so much, Justin. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.